This episode is being brought to you by the Sierra Club, which encourages you to get out there and explore, enjoy, and protect the planet. Join our 3.8 million members and supporters working to power this nation with 100% clean energy at sierraclub.org. And now, on to the show. Hi, I'm Marianne Hitt, climate activist with the Sierra Club living in the West Virginia Hills. And I'm Anna Jane Joyner, a climate activist living on the Gulf Coast of Alabama. And this is No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. This season, we're bringing the light. In times of great crisis, whether it's the climate crisis or the coronavirus, many of us turn to our spiritual traditions for solace and guidance. So that's what we're doing this season of No Place Like Home. We so hope that y'all have enjoyed the interviews we've been doing this season with folks from all different kinds of spiritual backgrounds. Today, we are really excited to bring you this conversation from the Buddhist tradition. Marianne and I spoke with Dr. Kriti Kenko. She's a climate scientist with the Environmental Defense Fund, and she's also a practicing Zen Buddhist who has spent a lot of time writing and thinking about the intersections of her spiritual tradition with the climate crisis. We are so excited to have Dr. Kriti Kanko on the show. So much wisdom to be gleaned from this conversation, and we can't wait to share it with you. But first, we want to share some wisdom from one of your fellow listeners. We have been asking y'all to share passages, prayers, or poems that are giving you strength, anything from your faith or spiritual traditions that's been helpful to you in facing the climate crisis. This one is from my dear friend and colleague, Bill, in Los Angeles. Hi, my name is Bill Corcoran. I'm a senior student at the Zen Center of Los Angeles. And here's a passage by Zen teacher Joan Sutherland that calls me back to myself amidst the daily tumult of my work as a climate activist. Do you trust your life? Not trust it to give you what you think you want or always to turn out the way you think it should, but fundamentally, unconditionally trust the fact of being alive, no matter what. How you answer that question perfumes your heart-mind and every moment of your days. It's the difference between feeling at home in your life or exiled from it, even as you live it, alienated or intimate. Mm, That was really good. So Anna Jane, you and I both had the great privilege of speaking with Kriti, and I'm so excited to share this interview with our listeners. I think it's going to provide a lot of wisdom and guidance in some very chaotic and tumultuous times. Yeah, amen to that. She's truly been a gift during these crazy times. Kriti's spiritual journey with Buddhism started when she came to the U.S. from India to do her Ph.D., She was raised Hindu, but remembers her family celebrating kind of a big variety of different religious guides and symbols. There is pictures of Christ and Mary alongside statues of Hindu gods all on her family altar. And there were also Buddhist symbols as well. I grew up, you know, watching many different kinds of gods around me and they were all deities and protectors and It was almost like paganism, not believing in anything very strongly. And then she came to the U.S. in 2001 and told us that she got really depressed. There were a number of reasons, but one of the big ones was I just couldn't make sense of America. 
the giant wheels of consumerism here. I would go into a supermarket and I would just be like, how can there be so much abundance on one side of the Atlantic when people in my country are facing immense poverty, right? I mean, that paradox continues to this day. But at that time, I had no means to make sense of what was around me. And wrestling with that paradox and kind of dark period of depression is what steered her towards Buddhism. At the time, she was doing her PhD in computational biology, and in particular, she was studying the manipulation of genomes. And I thought, gosh, I'll end up working for pharmaceutical companies, and I just don't want to do that. I just stopped believing in my program. I was questioning who am I in this country, and really got depressed. And it was at that time someone said, do you want to try Zen meditation? You know, to this day, there is a part of me which hesitates to say I am a Buddhist. What I am, the core of me is a meditator. Meditation, it took a while, but suddenly I had my switch flip. I was depressed, I was depressed, I was depressed, and I started meditating. Within a few weeks, I found myself just laughing. Like there is a deep laughter that rises from within you. Nothing outside has changed, but I was at ease in my bones. So I was hooked. That was 2001. So that's how I found Buddhism. And she told us that she has gained so much from meditation, which is a central element of Buddhism that really centers around tapping into this feeling of inner connection or oneness. She calls it interbeing, as Vietnamese and Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh has described it. He uses the word interbeing, interbeing, or sometimes he says inter-are. So, you know, when we use the word interconnected or interdependent, it is used very often in Buddhist literature, it still means that there are two things that depend on each other. So Mary Ann depends on Anna Jane and Anna Jane depends on Mary Ann, but they are still two people, two human beings. But the word interbeing, interbeing means Mary is Anna and Anna is, Anna is Mary. We exist together, or in other words, we come into being together. We come into life together. I don't exist without you, and you don't exist without me. Yeah, it's interesting. When I was in college, I got into a, f a phase where I was super into quantum physics. I feel like maybe everybody went through this phase. But one thing that I took away is that we literally are a part of each other, like our atoms kind of interchange. And so even the physical parts of our beings are interwoven. And I think that's a really magical um, and beautiful metaphor for how we are connected to the earth and to each other. We are we are not apart. We are a part of the same living being and we are part of each other. Yes. And, you know, imagine how differently we might approach all these challenges that we're facing, the climate crisis, the coronavirus, um, if we really approach the world as fundamentally seeing one another as the same, um, as truly interdependent and interconnected, as opposed to a lot of the 
individualism and the othering and the sort of protect your own kind of approach that unfortunately we are still seeing from our political leaders. But I think this is definitely a moment to step back and think about how we would approach our climate and the natural world if we really viewed it from this place of interbeing. Hmm. There's a long tradition of Buddhist teachers going out into nature to meditate and to kind of reconnect with that sense of oneness or inner being, Kriti tells us. Um, And it's key to coming together to act on climate change. So Kriti is a part of this kind of spiritual Buddhist movement called Eco-Dharma. And the idea started in Spain, but she was involved in bringing it over to Boulder, Colorado, where she lives. And they do meditation retreats where they bring people into nature to restore that sense of kind of interconnection that many people, especially in more urban environments, have lost. It's really not just about kind of sitting in nature and meditating. It's about exploring how Buddhist teachings apply to the ecological crisis that we're in right now. Yes. And we talked to her about that, about a theme you and I have returned to many times over the years on this podcast the eternal question of individual actions versus collective action in in the environmental movement and in facing the climate crisis and, and what's more important and how do we navigate those two. And she told us such an amazing story that I'm so excited to share with our listeners about a bodhisattva crow. Uh, And a bodhisattva means essentially an enlightened being in Sanskrit. And uh, just listen to this beautiful story she shared with us. So there is a forest fire and a lot of species are burning in pain in that forest fire. You can literally um, imagine Amazon burning. And there's a crow got no buckets, no tools, no technologies, no fancy policies, no carbon prices, no beyond call campaign, nothing. Crow has got its tiny beak, tiny beak, and crow flies to a water body, fills his mouth, her mouth with water, and flies back to the forest and drops those tiny drops of water into the forest, and then goes back, and then comes back, drops the water. That's a bodhisattva crow. And I know from a thinking perspective, from a strategic point of view, this is absolutely foolish. You foolish crow, what the hell are you doing, right? If I want to strategize and I want to advise that crow on campaigning, I would say, can you get 10,000 crows with you at least? But the point is that we do what is right. It might not extinguish any fires, but we have to step up and do what is right. And the word for that, as I said, is bodhisattva. Don't worry about what results your efforts will yield. Just do it. And you do it because you inter are with the forest. The beings that are crying in the forest is you. So how could you not? The bodhisattva is not led by must and shoulds and morality as much as the bodhisattva crow is led by pain because that is her own pain. Hmm. 
her pain is our pain. It's so hard to know, especially right now, what to do. And as a strategist or campaigner, I do sometimes think through that lens, but really it's just doing the next right thing that helps you and helps each other because we're the same. It's so simple in a lot of ways. It's not judging, you know, do my individual actions, are they worthwhile? Are they going to move the needle on the scale? that matters, you know, the kind of underlying question is, where are you drawing your motivation from? And and it's the sense of inner connection and that you're sort of sharing the pain of all life that is suffering. And, you know, I think you could compare that with some of the Christian tradition, frankly, around guilt and shoulds and top-down morality, I guess, and, uh, you know, doing things out of a sense of guilt or shame as opposed to doing them out of this sense of oneness that we are all connected, which I think is also there in the Christian tradition, if you can see it there. But this moral goodness coming from within and driving the work and then recognizing each of us can only do so much, I think is a worthwhile perspective on why we do the right thing, even if sometimes it, what we're doing seems very small, maybe a little comforting or reassuring or, um, I don't know, encouraging, I guess, is the word I'm looking for. Yeah, I find it really encouraging. So this sense of inner being is is super powerful and super needed right now. But Kriti says there's a very big obstacle that we as humans have put in the way of finding that kind of universal sense of connection that we need to take on the climate crisis. Racism is probably one of the biggest causes of climate crisis. And to not see racism and white supremacy and the social injustices, layers of oppression that are embedded in white supremacy and racism today is not seeing climate crisis for what it is. I'm a scientist and we always like to say, well, carbon dioxide concentration increasing, that is the cause. This is a physics problem, right? Yes, absolutely. That is a problem of physics. However, at the cultural level, at the spiritual level, the cause of our systems of oppression that exist in the world, this neoliberal capitalism, industrial revolution, that is embedded, first of all, at the spiritual level in separation. If I am Mary Ann and I am not Anna Jane, I'm just going to look after myself, right? So that's the spiritual cause. In fact, I've talked to Zen teachers who would say, why do you talk about racism? The cause of all of our problems is that we feel separate from each other and from nature. And that's it. But racism is the midwife between us feeling separate from each other and going to this point where physics or chemistry of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases cause climate crisis. The form, the cultural form that separation has taken in our society is racism. Unless we heal the trauma that was caused by these cultural factors, racism, colonialism, and so on, how do we collectively generate the power of a million bodhisattva crows marching to save Amazon from burning. 
it makes so much sense to me that the root cause of the climate crisis and so so many of, of our crises is racism and oppression, which is really about otherness and about separation, not seeing yourself in those around you. There's so much trauma and healing that has to happen along with the kind of hardcore activisty things that we need to do. I'm wondering just how, you know, how do we confront that trauma, grief and trauma processing our Western society and even the climate movement isn't very good at handling that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you think about the deep and profound grief and trauma around racism, slavery, colonialism, uh, and the profound amount of healing that is needed to stitch us back together and to repair that interconnectedness. That is some very profound and important work. And uh, grief is woven throughout that. And, you know, that's something that has come up a lot in this season. And I think as the coronavirus has unfolded, as the climate crisis continues to unfold, mourning what is being lost and finding a way to work with and through that grief, it feels all of a sudden the importance of that has accelerated. It's interesting just in this kind of season of coronavirus meets the climate crisis. I feel like a lot of climate activists, certainly myself and I know you, Marianne, have been wrestling with kind of grief and trauma, even starting with mountaintop removal coal mining, where both of us started our careers. Like there was so much grief involved in that work because we were literally losing these mountains that that we loved in front of our eyes and, and communities and people that we knew were being harmed because of it. And I feel like climate is that on a global scale and coronavirus is like all of that just accelerated even though it's not necessarily losing places, it's losing so many people and having all of our social norms kind of upended and the incredible grand uncertainty of what our life is going to be like is kind of a, a micro metaphor, I think, of what we're figuring out with climate on a big picture, although I really hope that climate doesn't involve anywhere near <laughs> this amount of acute stress and uh, you know, I'd like to give you a hug again in my lifetime, Mary. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, just there's so many parallels, and we're we're all still in the middle of it. I think we're going to be trying to learn from this for the foreseeable future. But I do think that kind of yearning for human connection, even in this time where we can't physically be together, I think that is what gives us a lot of courage and, and gives me a lot of courage in being able to take it on. This kind of fierce individualism that has punctuated American life, it's clearly not working for the coronavirus or for climate change. And it also flies in the face of Buddhist teachings about unity and inner being. Absolutely. And as we're trying to find our way back to that, Kriti says that grieving is actually something that can be a communal process that brings people together rather than separating us to mourn these losses in private, as Western cultures sometimes tend to do. What we need is we need to go back to ancient practices that come from people of color all over the world, how they have creatively, wisely managed their trauma load. And they have come up with so many different kinds of grieving practices. So that's a lot of work that I do within eco-dharma community and outside it is around grief rituals, getting people together, 
creating safe, trusting spaces where we can allow our bodies to let grief emerge. And it's like then your bodies are like a sponge and you collectively squeeze them and tears flow out. And we wail together and we cry together, we scream together. I invite people to make belly sounds. I invite people to make primal sounds that convey their anger, frustration. And it's extremely effective. People sometimes say, I've had shoulder pain for 10 years and I don't have it anymore, right? It's gone. Like I was holding something so tight in my body, in my somatic system in my nervous system and it's gone not that it will not come back we are surrounded with layers of trauma all around us collectively as a community but we begin to find pathways to release them so for me that's what healing has been hmm, i think that's so important i know in in my kind of processing the climate crisis Some of the most important teachers for me have been indigenous leaders and indigenous wisdom. And also being down here in the Deep South, really looking at, you know, the civil rights tradition and and what people of color in this region have gone through for centuries and how they were still able to find courage and even joy in the midst of incredible oppression and uncertainty. This idea that we all kind of have to mourn climate change together and we have to mourn the coronavirus together in order to move through it It makes a lot of sense and we can't bottle it up or shove it away or keep pretending that life can go on as normal because it it can't and and you know change is happening and we can either lay down and kind of succumb to the incredible anxiety of fear of what that kind of change means or we can meet it with resolve and courage and and kind of hold each other six feet apart together. <laughs> Throughout this season and also the last season of our podcast, which was about the emotional and psychological dimensions of the climate crisis. And it's this theme about facing the fear and anxiety and trying to process them rather than shoving them down or pushing them away and not wanting to acknowledge them. And of course, you know, the reason it keeps coming up is because it's hard because who wants to sit with painful emotions and feelings. But I think the need to do that is it's the pathway through that that we need to take to confront the moment that we're in. And uh, Kriti told us that that is one thing that she is seeing emerge out of this coronavirus crisis is that it's not only bringing us together in grief, but it is also really forcing this deep collective pause of our systems as we know them and and reconsidering whether they might need to change. In the midst of all the scariness and uncertainty and fear about my own people getting sick or maybe losing some people I love, this virus is causing us to pause. It's making us slow down. It's clearing up rivers and air pollution. Yes, yes, the pollution will come back, the emissions will come back, but it's making people question things that we in the climate movement overall have failed to excite in our collective consciousness. This virus is making that possible. So, you know what I'm saying? I'm not saying that my sense of relief or joy is right or wrong, 
Buddhism doesn't talk about things in terms of right and wrong. I'm talking about the paradox. It's like yin and yang. Joy in the midst of grief and uncertainty and fear. And fear embedded within joy. That is just a very deep lesson. And when we grieve, when we face our deep layers of trauma in these times, when people come together to grieve, the very act of coming together in grief is joyous, you see? And somehow holding the grief and the joy together releases us from collective freeze of our consciousness, right? So I think that's what my hope is that we will learn lessons that we can take from this coronavirus situation and bring it to climate crisis issues in months and years to come. I just so hope that the kind of solidarity, connections and trust that are built in these next few months will be just long-term blessings for all of us, for our civilization. I think that is such a gift, Anna Jane, that we're really reminded right now that we are all in this together and that we actually do have the ability to take collective action together for the benefit of the greater good. and coming together both to grieve but then also coming together in joy and and seeing the paradox of the interconnection of those things that's definitely something i'm going to carry with me as i face one challenging and uncertain day after another i think as a climate you know someone who's been thinking about this for so long there is this kind of just low level grief that is almost always present I think I for maybe subconsciously just hoped that one day I would wake up and we will have tackled it to the degree where that would go away. And I could just go back to feeling excited and joyful and hopeful and optimistic about the world. It's not that I don't feel those things. It's just that they coexist with kind of a grief and a loss. And that's okay. That's really what life is about, right? Even without the climate crisis, we would be existing in kind of um, this interwoven marriage of grief and joy because that's what being human is. Humans don't like to face loss or death or change, and we're being forced to. And we're having to learn how to be compassionate with ourselves and others as we do that. And I think that is really important lessons for for how we face these uncertain days and the uncertain days to come. But most of all, I'm really thankful to be facing them with you and with all of the amazing people in this community. And I I think this has just, you know, kind of highlighted how important our people and our world are and we can't take things for granted. You know, one thing that Kriti has been uh, working on over on Twitter, if you go follow her, is calling for a culture of compassion as we respond to this crisis and others that are to come. And that is my wish for all of our listeners out there that wherever you find yourself, that you can come from a place of compassion and that there is a culture of compassion around you as we face uncertain times. You know, who would have guessed when we started this podcast season that we would be wandering into such uncertain times together as friends and as a country uh, and as a planet and just so grateful to you for these wise and thoughtful conversations and so grateful to our listeners for taking this journey with us. 
Yes, and thank you so much to our amazing guest, Dr. Kriti Kenko. Yes, it, this was a gift at a perfect time. Hey, friends, it's Marianne. One more thing we wanted to share. After we recorded this interview, Kriti came down with the coronavirus, and fortunately, she is on the mend after having had a very rough time, and so we just wanted to send her our love and support, and also wanted to let you, our listeners, know that she has been very generous and open in sharing her experiences, both on her social media feeds, she's on Twitter at Kriti Kanko, um, and blogging about it on her site, which is boundlessinmotion.org. So if you're looking for insights from someone who's been through this harrowing physical and emotional experience, or if you're looking for her reflections after having been through it, please take a look at that. And Kriti, again, we're so happy that you are on the mend. Our hearts are with you. And thanks for your openness in everything you've shared with all of us. Thanks to the great band River Wireless for our theme music. Y'all be sure to check them out on social media and support all of your favorite artists in this crisis and beyond. And thanks also to our generous sponsor, the Sierra Club. This episode was produced by Allison Wilson, and we are distributed by Critical Frequency. We would be so grateful if y'all would subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review there because that really helps us out and helps other people find the show. And join the conversation between episodes by following us on Twitter at NPLH Podcast. And remember, there is no place like home. Thank you.